As was mentioned in the announcements, as well as even in our prayer, the thanksgiving we each feel unto God to allow us to gather this evening, how so many in our world, perhaps due to illness or sickness of some variety or even other family catastrophes or crises, are not able to meet as you and I are in the peacefulness of this hour. And yet, as we contemplate just how great God's blessings for us and to us have been, we never should forget that all spiritual blessings are found, of course, in Christ Jesus. And so tonight, as we look yet again into the book of Hebrews, we come this evening to, as you can see, a lesson entitled The Assurance of Faith, having marched forward in that book to the 11th chapter at this point, some introductory thoughts to place us in the context of where we closed our study on the last occasion, and also to prepare us for this evening, perhaps would well be in order. As you will notice, the consideration of Hebrews so far has quite often reminded us, rather frankly, about the character and nature of some Old Testament recognitions and how that, that pointed to the Christ. We've been reminded on so many occasions about a character of the Old Testament or a particular figure of the Old Testament, be it the tabernacle, be it something that related to the offering. And the Hebrew writer over and again made use of that which had taken place in that previous dispensation and used it to directly point to the Christ. Tonight, as we come to chapter 11 we come to perhaps the most famous chapter in Hebrews, sometimes called the faith chapter of the New Testament. Because so often the word faith is employed in this chapter, and over and again a particular Old Testament character is lifted before our eyes as an example of what faith really is. I've listed some facts and features that might be of benefit to us as we begin our study of this chapter tonight. It will come as no surprise to any of us that faith is a rather common and frequently occurring topic in the New Testament. In terms of wording, you can see the English word faith occurs some 360 times in the Bible. That's the word itself or some derivative form of it. However, even perhaps more impressively, you'll notice the Greek word pistis, P-I-S-T-I-S, which is translated faith on so many occasions. It itself occurs some 276 times in the New Testament alone. No wonder we are led to appreciate the simple fact that faith is a vital topic, essential if one is to be pleasing unto God and ever to entertain the hope of an, of an eternal home in heaven. Thus, it would do us well to reflect tonight on this rather familiar chapter and give some thinking as to what really is faith and what does it mean in your life and mine. I would propose that we begin to do that by drawing our attention to that sixth verse of chapter 11 that we noted earlier in the reading tonight. For without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Highlighting yet again the necessity, the essentiality of faith. Without it one cannot please God. That's one of those occurrences in the blessed scriptures in which an absolute impossibility is set before us. Without faith, one cannot please our Heavenly Father. And so tonight, as we give some consideration to this faith chapter of the Bible, suffice it to say, throughout all the examples of faith that are listed, we will not be able to look in detail at each one of them, but we can seek to extract some vital lessons that are set before us in the chapter. And that can be used to remind us of what is faith and what truly does it mean. I would suggest we start that study in the following way. By, for instance, taking a careful look 
at some notes that might well need to be stated given the context of where this occurs. We mentioned in passing just a few moments ago that it seems, perhaps, that chapters 7 through 9 especially had a degree of depth to them. And we've reminded ourselves of the imperative need we each have to mature to that point we can chew on the meat of the matter. And in that, we saw the depth of the argument concerning Melchizedek. And we saw the character, the fact there's a new, better covenant. And we spent now three weeks looking at the tabernacle, how each portion of it really pointed directly down the stream of time to the reality of the Christ and what would be available to the human family through him. Now when we come to chapter 11, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that the betterment, the superiority of Christ is still in plain view. In fact, he is the synthesis of those matters that we have seen in these previous chapters. The Hebrew writer, in fact, draws us in chapter 10, that chapter between numbers 9 and 11, of course. And beginning in verse 9 of that chapter, listen to the pedestal upon which Christ is placed. The zenith, if you will, of that to which he points us. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest standeth daily, ministering, offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, when he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, is set down at the right hand of God on high from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. And as one reflects upon the breadth and the theological brilliance of that passage, we can't help but notice that Christ is its central feature in every particular. What those priests strove to accomplish, they were never able to do in the character and idealness of the Christ. For isn't it still the case that by one sacrifice he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified? That includes you and me as well. Now 20 centuries removed from the time he made that sacrifice. With Christ now held high before us, it would be fair to say that the closing part of chapter 10 as well as chapters 11 on to 13 set before the Hebrew individuals various daily practical matters that were direct results of and consequences of the reality of these truths we've learned in the previous chapters. To perhaps say that differently, how does all these things we've learned about the tabernacle and the covenant and Melchizedek and all these supposedly deep matters, how do they apply to you and me tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday? How does my life affected by it as a believer in the Christ, as one who needs and should live by faith? We're now going to answer it as we close this book. In the lessons that follow, all of them will build on that, extract practical lessons so needful for you and for me. Tonight will be the first one in that mini-series, if you please. And we'll turn our attention to chapter 11, the faith chapter of the New Testament. It begins, in fact, in such a dramatic and powerful way as it sets before us an operational definition of faith. What is faith? If someone were to approach you or me and simply inquire, what is faith? That word that occurs 276 times, pistis, and is so often translated faith. What is faith? 
The Hebrew writer begins in these words. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Maybe you've committed that definition to memory or perhaps you've read it so many times that it sounds so familiar. Hebrews 11 verse 1. I would suspect that at least for a few moments we can perhaps attach some extended meat to the skeleton of that definition to attempt to embed more thoroughly in our minds what is meant by that employment of that word faith. If you'd like to consider in order some of those things written therein, our King James translators made use of the word substance, the substance of things hoped for. The literal Greek word means, as you can see, the word assurance or indeed the word confidence. And I chose that as the title of the lesson tonight, the assurance of faith. Can you and I have then a degree, and in fact an overwhelming degree of confidence and assurance relative to the system of faith that we have embraced? To this system of faith to which we have placed the entirety of our life here and all the hopes for our life hereafter. How much confidence do you have in that which you and I so often hear? Do you believe it with all your heart? with all your soul? Have you placed with the firmness of without any restriction your belief in the things stated? It does relate to what faith is, doesn't it? But what's more? You'll note the verse ends by saying, reference to that word evidence, the evidence of things not seen. That is such a powerful and straightforward way of considering the idea, isn't it? The evidence. That word evidence means proof or conviction. The proof of things not seen. We perhaps are well aware that in the scientific community, conviction, evidence, and proof requires experimental verification. It requires repeatability as experiments are done time and again, and they each provide results that are consistent with some hypothesis which ultimately will become a scientific theory, perhaps a law, if no violations of it are found. You might note something that has immediately been set before us. The inspired writer wrote, The evidence of things not seen. The proof of all that you and I cherish so dear is not going to be found in a scientific laboratory. We may discover and find, and certainly we will, that all that is found scientifically will be in harmony with this. But science cannot prove in a scientific way those things that you and I see through the eye of faith, they cannot. And in fact, in light of that, notice some of the other comments worthy to be seen. Might I ask, what scientific laboratory anywhere is able to define and identify sin? Well, the answer is evident, and it's obvious, isn't it? There is no scientific laboratory that can point to and characterize by definition the character of the existence of sin and its consequences. But we each understand through the eye of faith and the revelation of God that sin does exist and that in fact much of the world is frequently thereby guilty of it, including you and me. Not only that, look at some of the other elements in the list. The end of sin being death, spiritual death, separation from God, Forfeiture of all those blessings that one could otherwise have by virtue of association with the God of heaven. There isn't a laboratory anywhere that can illustrate, prove, if you please, that's that statement. 
And yet, the Hebrew writer says, the evidence of things not seen. You and I know those things are true because of our faith in the Holy Scriptures. Our faith in the system of recognition that we call the gospel of Jesus Christ. Consider yet some others. The existence of a place called hell. We are told in the New Testament of this place and our belief in the Word of God in its absolute correctness with no mistake or error found therein leads us inevitably to that conclusion. And by faith we believe it. And that prompts us with the courage and bravery to in fact speak of it in absolute terms and tones because it does exist. Jesus spoke of it that way, did he not? In actuality, in factuality, the eye of faith, you see, allows us to appreciate the proof, the evidence of these things that no scientist can otherwise dictate or prove to us. But we know that they are. As you close that slide, that leads me to ask two rather compelling questions. These, of course, relate to the case of your life and mine. We mentioned hell. What about heaven? You see, that's a much brighter subject, isn't it? And one filled with brilliance. Believing that there is a place beyond the veil of this life without the clutter of all of its uncleanness, the badness, the sin, the iniquity related thereto, this place is a pristine paradise in every regard to those who love the Word of God. It is a place described on a number of pages in the New Testament, sometimes in the old, although not many, but as we look to those things, our smiles come to our faces because we want to be there. That leads me to ask, are you saved? How much confidence do you have in the gospel plan of salvation? And how much confidence do you have that right now your name is in the book of life? Ponder this with me. Suppose two minutes from now, your death comes your way. Are you absolutely sure, without the slightest doubt in your mind, that you are saved here and now? That speaks, doesn't it, to the element of faith which we're addressing tonight. The proof, the conviction, the assurance of these things. We are told in the New Testament we can feel within us the character by virtue of the revelation of God. Assurance by faith in these matters. Let's test each of ourselves tonight with the question, how sure are we? Are we 100% confident? We should be. We ought to be. We should thus mature and strive to become so if we aren't. But as we proceed on into chapter 11 of Hebrews, may we refer to this time and again and ask about that eye of faith and the assurance of what it allows us to see ever so clearly. On our next slide, we're able to appreciate some of the next elements in this. As we look at exactly what faith is and how it is presented to us. As the word faith is employed in this chapter, it describes so clearly, doesn't it? A system. And you'll notice that I use that word very clearly. It's not just an arbitrary system. It is a unique system in which each one is able to respond to the offer of God's grace. God has offered the beauty of salvation through His Son to any and to all, but sadly, catastrophically, all will not receive it. All will not thus bend the knee to faith and accept it as God has revealed it. They prefer their way or some other way. 
Faith is simply, again, that response to the offer of God's grace. And as that is set before us in the New Testament, we ought to thus appreciate the fact there is one faith. Ephesians 4 5 still lifts high the banner that just as surely as there is one Lord, there is also one baptism, and sandwiched between them there is one faith. And hence, when one considers there's one pistis, one faith, you and I are privileged to appreciate, to learn it, to implement it, to use it, to walk thereby, and thus to experience all the blessings related to the keeping of it. One faith. What are some of the things stated with respect to that one faith? Where does it come from? If an individual were to inquire of you and to me, how can I help to increase my faith? Romans 10.17 aids us greatly, doesn't it? Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. We thus should understand that faith will ultimately derive from a turning to the sacred word of God. As we study it, as we rightly divide it, as we apply it, as we allow ourselves to interact with it and use it as the guide to our life, our faith will increase, we will mature, and we will become those kind of individuals of whom maturity will be readily seen as we grow in Christ. In First Peter 2, verses 1 and 2, as surely as one thus in the essence and interest of growth sets aside some things that deter it, we notice, he says, desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. That growth of which we're speaking, that growth that's hinted at and even addressed directly on so many occasions, is a growth that in fact leads us to note a number of things now from Hebrews 11. You might notice that we started by stating that this is the faith chapter of the Bible. Let's come to the point now of asking, so in specificity, what is available by virtue of faith that we learn from this chapter? I would submit a listing that will be of great benefit to us. I have listed in each one of the references, there is a single number with a semicolon in many cases followed by a second reference. The first number is the verse number of Hebrews chapter 11. And the other reference comes from some other chapter and book of the Bible. So, for instance, as we come to the first thing of which we might note, we come in chapter 11 immediately to verse number 3. Through faith we understand that the worlds were not framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. One of the things that we can readily then take with us as a consequence of faith is a worldview that, if you'll pardon the pun, is worlds apart from that which the common person has. We have a degree of understanding, not to be arrogant, not to be overly prideful thereof, but a correct worldview that so many in the world do not have. That worldview is a rather deep and powerful understanding of and appreciation for the construct of this world, how it came about, what its destiny is, and what life should be about lived herein. Notice some of the ways that that is presented to us. Science may tell us this universe by some means managed to come about on its own from a big bang. Others are perhaps willing to tell us it came about by some other rather strange artifact. With regard to human life, there are those who will tell us that aliens planted it here. One could continue with this list till midnight. 
point is, all of these are worldviews that are not only skewed, they are incorrect. All we need to do is turn to the opening verses of the book of Genesis and we learn how this universe came about. We learn there is an omnipotent, awesome God that brought it into its being and sustains it day by day with the properties and operations that we appreciate. And with regard to human life found therein, it is no accident, nor ever was it so. It is, in fact, virtually laughable to think that there are intelligent individuals who really do think that life came about by accident. In some ancient primordial primeval soup, due to the striking of a little lightning, by virtue of coming together of some particular acids, and utterly out of this popped something that was alive. Utter nonsense. We read in Genesis 2-7, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. To take those inanimate things like dust and dirt and soil and bring of that a living creature, our God did that. And you and I with that worldview thus have an appreciation for the specialness of this human being. For what you and I really are, we are immortal spirits. We learn in Genesis 1.26 that you and I are made in the image and in the likeness of God. As such, we read in Luke 24.39, a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones. And hence, that which really is you and me, though we see the physical body, that's not us. We are thus immortal spirits. We tabernacle for a while in this flesh, but at the time of death the spirit departs the body, James 2.26, and there's another existence in Hades, awaiting the glorious return of our Savior in the second return, of course. Our worldview, you see, is the proper, correct one by virtue of this. So far removed from the scientific silliness that is so often presented. But not only that, you might notice that Paul lifted high that thought when he preached to the intelligentsia of Athens in Acts 17. Here was an individual namely the Apostle Paul, who with courage and fortitude stood on Mars Hill and made comments at least in ways much like this. He said, you men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you're too superstitious. Paul, you see, really appreciated the fact that when he came into the place, he said, I beheld your devotions. And there was one of them directed to the unknown God. He said, whom you ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. This God doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. He, in fact, is such that in Him we live and move and have our very being, Acts 17.28. Isn't it amazing to listen to Paul's courage as he stood there and talked to those who were so given to these philosophies of science. And Paul preached to them the truth of this God whom you ignorantly worship. He is the only true God. Let us also notice, we learned that from Hebrews 11 verses 3 and following. But what else do we also see in this chapter? You and I also learn what is involved in a proper offering to God. The very next verse, verse 4. On that occasion, it's Abel who is the source of our consideration. By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead yet speaketh. What was the medium or the agency by which Abel offered a more sacrifice to God? 
The inspired writer said, by faith. And hence, when we come to the point of seeking to offer worship, for instance, to God, if it is not done in faith, if it is not done with an attitude of proper respect and response to God's revelation, it will not be acceptable to Him, for it must be offered in faith. Our Savior declared, did He not, in John 4, He stated that God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And hence, if worship is not done through the eye of faith in both spirit and truth, it will not be acceptable to Him. Nadab and Abihu teach a rather valuable lesson in that regard, do they not? Turning back as far as Leviticus 10, we remember here were two priests, the very sons of Aaron, the opening and first high priest, who, though they thought they were offering unto God, their offering was unacceptable. In fact, they lost their life on that occasion. The fire leapt forth and consumed them. God was displeased with their offering. Today, may we thus understand too that an offering not done in faith is not acceptable. And how many times did Paul warn the Corinthians of lessons like that? And on his missionary journeys as he admonished what proper worship involves, that it must be done through the element and through the reality of faith. We've thus seen so far that a proper worldview and understanding as well as the proper way to offer unto God. Both involve faith. But what about thirdly? We also notice life that's acceptable depends on faith. In verses 6 and 7, with particular note of verse 7 for the time being, we notice Noah is now the subject of discussion. And with regard to Noah, we read, By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. There is a righteousness which is by faith. And we learn that Noah was a one who in fact lived and directed his life according to faith. And by it, you notice that he moved with fear and he condemned the world by that actions of faithfulness that he set forth. As you and I give thought then to what that involves, here was a man who lived in the midst of a world known for its wickedness. Genesis 6 verse 5 still tells us that the thoughts of men's hearts were only evil continually. And yet three verses later in verse 8 we read, But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Why? Noah was just and perfect in his generations. You see, and yet here that description accords to faith. We may well revisit then that question we raised earlier. Is your life one guarded, guided, lived by faith? Can you testify of yourself by virtue of accordance to the Bible, much the way that it did of Noah? Known as righteous and one who lived perfect in your generations? That's a telling question, isn't it? And one that challenges each of us. If we expect life to be lived acceptably to God, it must be by faith faith in all that this book reveals, taking it simply for the way God has revealed it, not trying to insert what we think, not trying to change what we happen not to like. That verse is fine, but the one that follows, I don't like because I'll have to change something. That's not the way faith works. Faith takes this as absolute conviction, confidence, and assurance without question, even if you and I perhaps don't like it. Faith lives by it. 
without exception and without apology. Thus, we learn through Abel and now through Noah that living by faith is quite often the very matter of life that the world eschews. The world does not prefer because the world doesn't want to change to conform to what seemingly is so old. In Inasmuch as we've seen those three, however, we notice after Noah we come to another example. We learn something that takes us back to an element we raised earlier, found in verses 9, 10, and 16. Verse 9 of the chapter brings us to Abram. You and I know him better as Abraham. By faith he sojourned in a land of promises in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, with heirs, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Now note verse 16, if you would, in the same context. But now they desire a better country, that is, in heavenly. Wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. Is God preparing for you right now a city? Are you sure of it? Are you certain by the manner in which you've chosen to live that you are living in accordance to the faith of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Galatians 3a, that by virtue of that faith you can then rest all the confidence of this life and the one thereafter in the reality of its promises? Abraham knew that his sojourn here was only temporary. He looked for a city which hath foundations whose builder and maker is God. And you and I, like they, look for a better city, a heavenly one. As we look for that place, it's no wonder our eyes must be rigidly fixed upon that place so that we won't be sidetracked and distracted and defocused along our pathway here. For isn't it still the case? Enter ye in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many therein there are which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leadeth into life, and few there be that find it to quote our Savior in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. Thus, we understand through the element of faith that our time here is but brief. But we also know through the eye of faith that when our life here is over, that's not the end. We know in reality that's just the beginning. For all eternity yet hangs before us, and it'll be devoted and invested somewhere, either in a very precious place called heaven, or ultimately and finally in an anguish-filled, awful abode known as hell. You and I know those things by faith. What else do we know? What else is so certain and a proof to us? In verse 22, we learn something about the essence of life. There the subject before us was Joseph. And the verse reads as follows. By faith Joseph, when he died, was made mention of the departing of the children of Israel and gave commandment concerning his bones. We are in the midst of studying that, in fact, on Sunday morning as we study the book of Exodus. Because as the children of Israel left Egypt, sure enough, just as Joseph had indicated, they took with them his bones so that they could bury them in that promised land of Canaan. Isn't it interesting how certain Joseph was? Think how many centuries passed from the time Joseph told them that until they actually left Egypt. And how many centuries passed until again from the time he told them until they buried his bones in that land of Canaan. That took great faith, didn't it? When y'all leave Egypt, 
Be sure to take my bones with you. Joseph knew they were leaving. He may not have known the exact year, but he knew exactly that they were going. That leads us then to again question ourselves today, doesn't it? We each know we're leaving this life. Life in the flesh is not permanent. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, Hebrews 9.27, we know then and are ready to ask, So Randy, where are you going? What's after this life? In which way are you headed? The choice is left to me now. Notice it's not left to me hereafter, nor is it left to you. Prepare ye to meet the Lord, Amos 4.12 tells us. We need to thus be making ready day by day and be like those five wise virgins who were prepared always and ever ready, not trying to wait to the last minute. There are those who perhaps place their confidence on a deathbed repentance. I'll live my life all the way I want then and then and then. When I see I'm sick and about ready to die, then I'll change my ways. I'll repent and get baptized. Friend, doesn't work that way. Because might we ask, who knows the occasion of their death? Proverbs 27.1 tells us, Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. You or I could have a massive heart attack tomorrow without any time to make any changes or decisions whatsoever. A car accident may take your life or mine tomorrow. There may be no opportunity to make any last-minute decisions. Or what's more, we may be afflicted with some disease whereby dementia comes our way and we may lose our sanity and we lose the ability to make decisions like that. Today is the day of salvation, 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2. And do we not read in Hebrews 3 verse 12 of the reality of the fact that today is the day to make the decision. We learn all of that when we study faith in Hebrews 11. What else do we see? We note endurance in verses 25 to 27. The subject of our discussion now is Moses. Reading those three verses, it simply points this out. Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Moses endured. In the resistance that was offered to him by the Pharaoh's reluctance to submit to the, each one of the plagues, we notice that Moses, however, endured by virtue of his dedication and devotion. What about your endurance and your steadfastness? Have you fallen aside from the walkway of faithfulness? Do you need to come back and ask for prayers of strength and faith, confessing public error? We each are in a position of needing to be steadfast and unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. As Moses was an example of endurance for us, may we, in steadfastness and endurance, appreciate that courage is also an element found in verse 33 of this same chapter. On that occasion we read, Who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. The book of Daniel highlights such courage. Where we see Daniel cast, of course, into that den of lions, and yet we see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego 
also as they were shortly to be cast into a fiery furnace, they said, Be it known, O Nebuchadnezzar, as they made reference to the king of the era and of the time, be it known that we will not bow before this image that you've made. You see, they had placed their courage and their confidence in a power far higher than the king, and that was non-negotiable. Isn't it a shame that sometimes we are too quick to compromise and negotiate? We want to make a deal with the devil. We want to, in fact, make some kind of arrangement with him. Perhaps in that regard, Naboth would be a good example for each of us. He was unwilling to sail. May you and I have a not-for-sale sign on our spirit and on our soul. Never willing to compromise or negotiate to gain worldly gain or fame or pleasure or priority, but to appreciate that through the thoroughfare of faith we have access to all the greatest blessings that are hereafter. Perhaps in those regards and in those things, a few brief points in tonight the lesson will then have drawn to its conclusion. Those few points we can summarize in language like this. Isn't it interesting that faith also separates into two camps? There are those who are the believers, and that leaves all the others to be unbelievers. Which camp are you, and which camp am I in tonight? Are you numbered amongst the believers, or are you numbered amongst the unbelievers? Verse 31 highlights the fact that there are only the two camps. Our decision in this life points out which one we will be in eternally, which one we will be in in an everlasting fashion and in an everlasting way. You and I look for a better resurrection. And as we look for that, we appreciate that those unbelievers, on the other hand, die in their sins. Jesus said so in John 8, 24. And when they die in their sin, the only thing that awaits is that terrible abode wherein they are separated forever from God. 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 9. Those final remarks on that slide lead us to the meaning of the application of this in the opening verses of chapter 12. Brother Harold quoted some of this in our prayer just a few moments ago. Wherefore, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. What witnesses? These witnesses of which have just been named Abel, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Joseph, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Jephthah, Barak, and all the others, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is set down at the right hand of God. Notice what then is the encouragement for you and for me. Given their faithfulness and their endurance and their steadfastness and the example of faithfulness that they have said, he said, let us lay aside every weight, every obstacle, every resistance that would possibly bar us from inheriting the golden place known as heaven, set it aside. It isn't worth it. And run with patience the race that is set before us. You and I are thus to run a race. Notice he didn't say watch a race. He didn't say be a spectator in a race. We must run this race. And we run it as we live the Christian life day by day. We run it with perseverance, dedication, and patience. We run it relying on their example and using those examples to encourage ourselves. 
And of course, the principal example is Jesus. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. The word author means founder. The word finish means perfecter. He is the Alpha and the Omega, Revelation 1.8. He is the set of bookends to your faith and mine. It all relies upon Him. And so tonight, is your life, is your life based upon Him? Is it built upon Him? Are you a Christian, a faithful Christian? Have you had your sins washed away in faithful and scriptural baptism? And do you now walk hand in hand with the Master each day? If you do, you know what kind of life that you're living, how blessed it is, how noble that it is, how charged and encouraging that it is. But also, if things are amiss, if things aren't right, if you really aren't living by faith, you also tonight need to come and make a public recognition. If it's been a public sin, various sins of which others are aware, you need the prayers of others who can aid and approach God for your forgiveness. Perhaps you just need prayers of strength, prayers of encouragement. We'd be happy to assist in that way as well. In any way, whether as one who is an alien sinner or as one who needs to be rededicated to your first love, we tonight might close our lesson with language like that. Faith is an absolute requirement. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. And if your life isn't one of faithfulness tonight, why not make a change and make a public statement of obedience and in in what ways we can help, will you not let us know while together we stand and while we sing?